Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world. The way it was and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another edition of the Retro Disney World Podcast. This is episode 34, titled Dream Flight, where we'll be taking you back to the Delta Dream Flight attraction in Tomorrowland over at the Magic Kingdom. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting with me, as always tonight, is Mr. Hal Bowers. How are you doing tonight, Hal? Aloha. I'm doing fantastic. Excellent. Ready for your flight? I am. I'm all buckled in. I got my cocktail. Nice. There Ready we go. to go. And we got Mr. JT Couser. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Doing good. I'm excited. I love this ride. You got you got new tires and new Goodyear tires all ready to go for the. <laughs> I aircraft. do actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's cleared for takeoff from PHL, Mr. Brian P. Miles. Greetings from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. <laughs> How you doing tonight, Brian? I am fantastic. Excellent. All right. Well, we've got the crew together as always here, and uh, we always start with comments and corrections, and uh, we had a couple people write in. Uh, our last episode, guys, was the food episode, and uh, we had a lot of great comments. People tweeted and, and really enjoyed it. Um, we might do another one in the future. So uh, Chris wrote into us and said, uh, love the food episode. First trip was back in 1979. I remember some of these places. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much, Chris. We had uh, had a lot of fun time putting it together. And um, people have still been sending us menus. And Brian and I stumbled across one on eBay the other day and taking a look at it. So um, I know a couple people tweeted us and said they were they were getting hungry during that episode. So if you haven't listened to it, just get a snack at the ready before you hit play on that. Um, we also had Carla Carly write in, and she was said she loved the episode. Uh, and this goes back to the drink. Remember how we, I, I mentioned a drink that was over at the Tangaroa Terrace called the Sweet Leilani? I do. I remember you called it the Sweet Leilani, and I thought at the time, that can't be right. No, no. And I completely botched it. And Carla is correct. I, I did completely butcher it. Um, it was the Pink Leilani. And she says she remembers having it at the her, her stay at the Polynesian, which would have been in the fall of 88 or sometime in early 89 and it's referenced in Birnbaum's 88 guide um i'll have to dig out my 86 and see if it's there uh, it's a special polynesian village non-alcoholic treat the pink leilani a delicious orange juice and strawberry mixture and she says it was delicious so and and the recipe is also in that mickey's cookbook that was sold on property at the time that's right it, it is there yeah. so if you need to know the proportions uh it's all right there for you so so thank you carla for for correcting uh it is indeed a pink leilani now, um, how do you think you can add some mixers to that to make a more adult version of? Well, of course you can. All right, but. we'll wait for your recipe card <laughs> on that one. <laughs> All right, JT, we got uh, listener mail this month. What do we, what do we got coming in? All right, first off, a uh, message from a uh, friend of the show, Bill Barto. Yeah, hey, Bill. He's, 
I said, uh, I was glad to hear you guys mention Pepsi versus Coke during the podcast. As a PepsiCo employee, I was interested in that relationship and did a little digging. I find Ooh. it funny that, you know, you, have to, you kind of have to be an employee to call it PepsiCo. Like, okay, so <laughs> I'm going to get a PepsiCo product. I learned that Pepsi was available in the Magic Kingdom until 1981 when Coke signed an exclusive partnership in conjunction with their deal to sponsor American Adventure. Hmm. I thought it might have been mentioned, but you might... Be interested to know that the Epcot Cast Cafeteria shares the kitchen with the Odyssey Restaurant. It's a kind of well-known fact, but uh, and we knew that from our tomato chopping friend from last month. That's right, Steve. Yes. Steve the uh, <laughs> Steve the tomato guy. Tomato man. Yes. He says, uh, as a matter of fact, there's a door to the right of the counters in the Odyssey that leads directly to the Cast Cafeteria. I was also working in Disney MGM Studios in 1989 and would swear that sandwiches were available at the Studio Catering Company uh, back at the Backlot Tour Restaurant. I worked at that restaurant on and off and distinctly remember hollowing out rolls and stuffing it with a Cobb salad. <laughs> I could be way off, but it's a memory. Uh, and I uh, looked for an old menu for the restaurant but couldn't find anything. So what do you guys got on the hollowing out of the, the rolls? First, I want to go into the Odyssey and try to bust through that door, maybe, and just appear into the... So it really begs the question, is the, did the cast member, were they eating Odyssey food, or it was actually a shared kitchen? So it's kind of... Well, maybe. if you remember, mm-hmm. uh, unrelated, but sort of related, during the refurbishment of the Polynesian a few years ago, they opened the cast cafeteria there mm-hmm. for quick service food, and it, I mean... It's not an exciting thing, is it really? To like, oh, this is the lunchroom for the staff. Let's 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 get in there. In all the areas of the resorts that you want to that you want to experience, I don't know that the cast cafeteria is at the top of my like to see oh, list. Brian, we've been to the top of Spaceship Earth. What I mean, really? <laughs> that that said, on the subject of handwiches, yeah. While we haven't confirmed it, uh, I would, given the evidence, I mean, nineteen eighty nine. That was when they were being sold in the other parks. We know they were being sold from the Tomorrowland Lunching Pad and from the Farmer's Market in in uh, the land. So it would make total sense that they would also offer them at Disney MGM Studios at the same time. They lasted until 90 or 91 before they replaced them. Um, and the Cobb Salad being one of the hooks there at, at uh, Disney MGM Studios with the Brown Derby, it totally makes sense that this would not be a misremembering, that this would be something that uh, they probably sold at the beginning at the opening of Disney MGM Studios. And it went away the, uh, you know, when, when they took sandwiches away from everywhere else. But the best part about this story is he confirms that they hollowed out actual roles instead of these bread cone things that they're passing off as sandwiches now that's right which are like kind of manufactured in a way it almost looks like the, the bread is extruded and rolled into a it, into a the, cone almost yeah, yeah i i mean i know they sell them out in disney california adventure at the cars land and the cone thing but it is not the same i distinctly remember 30 years later, the handwich that I ate tasted exactly like a hoagie or submarine roll mm-hmm. that had been cut and hollowed out and did not taste like the bread cones of today that they try to pass off as them. So, so thank you for confirming that, Bill. I appreciate it. I'm going to have to go through some of the old pictures and video of the studio catering company. That's the one next to uh, Indiana Jones that has all that mm-hmm. backstage, right? Is that this? Yes. Yeah. So I'll have to go through some old photos and see if they're there. So, 
And and the other thing we should note here is he mentioned that uh, Coke got the exclusive partnership uh, to sponsor American Adventure. Coke was a joint sponsor of that attraction. What was the other company? American Express. The official credit card of Walt Disney World Resort. That's right. Yes. Surprised they didn't go with Diners Club, you know, so widely accepted. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Bill, for writing in. And uh, uh, JT, what else we got? We got something uh, coming from Minnesota, huh? Yeah, Mike from Minnesota sent us some photos and video of the former Fort Wilderness Railroad Roundhouse and DC-6, which is where the infamous chests of drawers were constructed. Yeah, Mike was kind enough to send us this stuff, and I think we should probably apologize because he sent it to us like six months ago. They were giant files that we kind of downloaded, put on the to-do list, and then with our event and life getting in the way... Uh, I happen to be going through some files last week and I'm like, oh my gosh, I completely forgot that we have these. Uh, so what happened was, uh, Mike, these were, these were years old. In fact, the one set I think was from 2006 and the other from a few years later, but Mike, uh, took it upon himself to ride his bike around the grounds of Fort Wilderness in search of the original roundhouse where the trains of the Fort Wilderness railroad would spend their nights and weekends. And uh, it is still there. He located it. It is the current, uh, at the time, it was the laundry facility. It is still there now. Google Earth shows that. Uh, and it's where they take the, the laundry. That may have been the, uh, uh, where uh, Camilla and Gonzo did lo love in a laundry. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible. It might be. I don't know. We'll have to find um, but... Uh, so it is there. He got a glimpse inside, and you can see where the tracks used to be. Well, actually still are. They're covered over mostly in concrete, uh, the tracks in the grounds. And then uh, he also took a ride out to DC-6, which, as JT mentioned, is the, the large building where U.S. Steel constructed the rooms for the Polynesian and the Contemporary uh, during the construction of the resort. And the building is still there. It's been used for years for uh, other warehouse purposes and distribution. But he actually got a cast member who took him inside uh, and he got some pictures of the tracks, which she said were rail car tracks, uh, where they used to actually, once the rooms were constructed, they would wheel them out, then presumably onto the back of a flatbed. Uh, but they used rail, rail car tracks uh, to actually move the stuff inside the building and get it in and out. Uh, and those tracks are still there. The remnants of those tracks are still there. So uh, well, he sent us some videos, which we'll have to edit at some point before we can share it with people mm. uh, because we don't want to get the cast members in trouble. Uh, but the uh, photos, I did tweet a couple of uh, still frames and photos that were shared with us. And we're going to put an article together on the site uh, in the next couple of weeks so that you guys can see this stuff. So, so be on the lookout for it. And thank you, Mike, from Minnesota. Yeah, thank you very much. It's awesome stuff that uh, a lot of us never got to see. So, All right. Next one was from Jeff in Philadelphia. Brian, your hey, neighbor. Yeah, look at that. Hey, Jeff, come on over. Yeah. <laughs> Sit in and says, record with us tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Said, hey, I was hoping you uh, would have mentioned the Mickey Goofy Universe of Energy comic book in your Universe of Energy episode. I still have a copy from my trip in December of 83. He says, I think my next trip wasn't for another five years, and I believe I had it before then. He said, would love some info on this. I was seven at the time, and I don't recall where it was given out. 
Uh, it seems crazy today that Disney was giving away something for free, which I agree. Uh, I read it a few years ago, and I seem to recall Goofy mentioning different sources of energy, and Mickey more or less telling him that fossil fuels are the only viable source. So, I mean, I've, I've seen these. They seem to yeah. float around, and we've given some away even. What do you guys know about this comic? First of all, I apologize for not including it. It was in my pile that night to talk about and um, completely forgot about it. And for those God, that were, Todd. I know, I'm sorry. And and for those that were at our event a couple uh, month, a month or two ago, um, we did have some of them on uh, on display there. I, I sent one down for that, so which is pretty cool. Um, if I recall correctly, and uh, we'll have to do some checking and digging on this, I believe they were handed out over at the energy exchange. Uh, as you know, when you exited the Universe of Energy Pavilion, you could go across the way into Communicore East and go into the energy exchange. And I believe they were they were down there. As far as Goofy mentioning different sources of energy and, and Mickey more or less telling the fossil fuels the only viable source, I, I got to read the comic book again and, and uh, see what my take on it is. But uh, the, you know, the message in the pavilion really was that there are a lot of different. Um, viable options out there um, but be interesting if uh, Mickey was kind of pressing his own views on it so I don't know maybe maybe the comic book was a little more political than we thought for its time who knows wasn't that uh, was the c- comic book sponsored by Exxon like the attraction it was and um, actually hold on a second I have a copy right here so let's verify yeah. something yeah and my recollection is that uh, they actually the sponsors gave away a lot of free stuff <laughs> back then in the early days of Epcot a lot of the pavilions had takeaways and you know whether they were paper collectibles or whether they were other trinkets and stuff the sponsors gave away a lot of stuff like last month we talked about the Oscar Mayer wiener whistles that's right and that uh, world of motion stuff always shows up from GM the, I don't know yeah, what they, was for sale what was giveaway definitely but. has obviously it has a logo of Exxon throughout the the entire thing uh, and throughout the entire comic and um, it does have the running tiger on the back but it does end with mickey saying the following meeting our energy needs will require the cooperation of science industry government and us the consumers we need to use limited energy sources wisely like oil and gas and also find new ones so and goofy's pretty pumped in the next one he's i don't know i might sit down and read this thing it's been 20 30 years since i read it so i might have to sit down a copyright 1985 so that dates it but thanks for writing in jeff we'll do a little more digging for you and let you know what we find for sure so that uh wraps up our mail bag listener mail if you would like to reach out to us podcast at retro you can send us an email there you can always call our voicemail and leave a question there or even just a facebook message twitter whatever we'll tr- we'll see you everywhere and hopefully we can get you on the air Yep, and the number to leave that message is 978-71-RETRO. You get up to two minutes to leave a little message, and uh, we can get you on the air. So hope to hear from some of you. So we should also probably take a moment to mention now between segments that this marks this month marks our three-year anniversary. That's right. And uh, it, it's our two-year anniversary is of us uh, not having to edit out calling listener mail viewer mail like we did the <laughs> The first year, every episode, like, hey, it's time for viewer mail. And then we'd have to edit it and redo it. Do over, do over. Oh, man. And I think we also now we, we, we actually we call it audio rewind. I think we had like four different names for it. It felt like I was always audio bumbling puzzler, over it. Right? Yeah, audio yeah, puzzle. Right. So, but with that said, let's get into this month's audio rewind. So, um, 
last month, uh, we had a good one. We had a lot of great response on it. Um, it tricked a number of you, actually. But uh, let's take a listen to last month's Audio Rewind. All right. If you guessed the Tiki Birds, you are correct. That was the last four or five notes right from the end um, of, of the song and, and the attraction. So we do have a winner, and that is Jonathan Cooper. So congratulations to you, Jonathan. All right, Jonathan. Yeah. Jonathan yeah. Cooper. So you'll, we'll send off last month's prize to you. This month... Um, for those that uh, joined us at our Epcot 35 event, looking back at tomorrow, back in September, uh, we've got a couple things left over. So we're going to be oh. giving away, yeah, an autograph photo of Corrine Cook-Gully, as well as uh, one of the wristbands that uh, we had uh, signify that they were indeed a paid guest. So we have a couple extra things hanging around. All right, so that prize can be yours if you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind. All right, if you think you know the answer to this month's audio rewind, send your guesses to podcast at retro WDW. All entries should be received by November 20th, 2017. And all correct entries will be entered into a random drawing to receive the prize. Now, we've been putting together a prize pot as well that we give away uh, twice a year. Actually, this year we gave one away in June, and we've got one scheduled to give away in December here. And... Uh, JT, you always uh, you always got things to add into the prize pod, and you keep track. So, what is in there so far? All right, three items so far is what I have. Yeah, because we uh, cut it off in the summer. This is our fall winter prize pack for yep. you people following along. First off, we have a 1971 Life magazine, a 1971 Look magazine, and the. Third thing is a 1986 Easter egg hunt invitation. So we need something to add. I have uh, this is from the 20 Magical Years celebration. I uh, have a which was 1991 for those uh, uh, addition and subtraction inept. Um, we have the Magic Kingdom as well as the Disney MGM Studios theme park guidebooks, which have some. These were still when they were doing the really cool maps. Remember these guys with the, the two color, yeah. colors for each of the lands and stuff like that? These were great. Um, yeah, if you look at the Magic Kingdom one, brown is, is Frontierland, Liberty Square. Tomorrowland is a hot pink. So um, really cool. So we're going to add those in. And then I've got a pile of some retro Epcot World Showcase postcards that are that are dropping in. So get that in there, JT. And um, now this is our technically our November episode. So next month we'll add something else in the prize pot and uh, we will draw a winner for the uh, for the end of the year. I love that old MGM map. Isn't that great? It's like the original. I got a shirt with that on it. So again, if you think you know the answer to this month's audio rewind, drop your answers to podcast at retrowdw.com and all entries, whether they are right or wrong, will be entered into the drawing for this year's prize pot. All right, well, it's time to get to our main topic. Uh, as we said earlier in the show, we're going to be talking about Dream Flight. Uh, a little bit of history lesson here. Uh, Dream Flight was located uh, in the track location where If You Had Wings was, uh, which then became If You Could Fly, and that closed in... Uh, uh, in late 1988, early 1989, and uh, after about five months of construction, on June 23rd, 1989, Dreamflight opened its doors, and uh, they had a celebration there, and uh, this was really 
kind of the handover, if you will, of Eastern Airlines sponsorship of the Walt Disney World Resort to Delta. Uh, there was a period of time there when if you could fly was, uh, was being uh, shown uh, that there, there was no uh, you know, sponsor for the airline. And I, I remember as a child taking Eastern Airlines down to Florida and later on taking Delta. Um, and you would get little bonuses as a kid. You get little, I don't know if you guys ever flew Eastern or Delta, but I remember getting like these little Delta, like little Mickey kits and masks or punch out paper things. I'll have to find out what the, what was on there. Yeah, there, there were kits for kids. And then a lot of the in-flight stuff, like the napkins and all would have the park logos and things like that. There's right. a lot of that floating around, little notepads and yep. pens and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and this is long before any special uh, livery was painted on an aircraft like they do now. You know, Southwest, you see Disneyland, or I think it's uh, Alaskan Airlines has some with Disneyland on it. And there's, I think there's a Walt Disney World plane and there's one in Asia, too. Uh, for Shanghai, possibly I can't remember. Um, so it was it was a big deal. Uh, you would see Delta Airline commercials encouraging you to fly Delta down uh, for your dream vacation, and um, it was definitely it was it was a travel agent type time period where you would go to a travel agency uh, and book your your vacation and get information on Walt Disney World, and Delta was a big part of it. So having themselves integrated uh, not only into the sponsorship but into an actual attraction. Uh, was was something that uh, was very important to them, and hence that's why they had Dreamflight. So, how you're going to take us through? We're going to walk basically through the attraction. I think it's probably best that we give everybody a little bit of a, uh, relating to what it is now, i.e., uh, Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin. So maybe they, for those that never saw Dreamflight or uh, can can then relate and kind of figure out where we are on the ride, because the track has not changed from the very first day that. Uh, if you had wings opened up until today. Yes, yeah, literally the same exact track today as it was back then. Uh, you know, when they did, if you could, I'm sorry, when they did Dreamflight, they could kind of, they changed the way the Omnimovers pointed. So that was a little different, but it was basically the same track. And of course now today they can spin in any direction that they want to. Mm -hmm. So that's a little, a little different, but yeah, it, it is literally the same exact track as, as it was still chugging along since like 1972. And can we think of any other attraction that has gone through that many changes and have not had any major interior redesigns? I mean, we know imagination, but the, the track changed. The track shortened. I can't. Yeah, think of I mean, not that many. You know, the Mexico Pavilion is kind of redone, but it's, it's mm. the same track layout. Uh, I mean, really, if that was one of the first, that was probably the first ride that I can think of that even got like the you know the the closed down and the overlay treatment. Right, rather than right. just scrapped and and started over again, um, that even beat the all the Epcot redos from the the early '90s when those sponsorships ran out. That's true, and so this track layout has officially seen five different attractions. <laughs> if 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 you, if you think if, you know, because you had if you had wings, you had if you could fly, you had Dream Flight, and we'll talk about later became Take Flight, and then you also have you know Buzz Lightyear now. Well. Uh, so here's what we don't know. <laughs> we don't know a lot about who actually designed the ride still. Some of that is, is still a mystery. So if, if the listeners out there have some ideas of who might have been responsible for, for some of this, uh, we would love to hear it. Because like uh, the illustrations that were done for the uh, for the Barnstormer sequence, I mean, one person obviously did it. It's a very distinct style. But like... Mm. That's this is one of the few rides where that that type of info is not really leaked out so much. Some of the research that I had, you know, that I found said it was George McGinnis. 
and somebody was suggesting Raleigh Crump too because of the the whimsical look. Mm. Um, I don't know what you found, How. In your... So I did find a Dateline Disney uh, interview from an old TV episode with a, a guy named Larry Gertz, um, and he was the project designer and producer for Dreamflight. Um, now he went on to do uh, Disney Quest and a bunch of other projects for the Disney Company. Um, and I believe that he said in an interview um, that there were some storyboards done by George McGinnis. And then he kind of took over the project and, and went on from there. And, and there was a, uh, <clears throat> the reason I say storyboards is because there's actually in George McGinnis's book, he mentions just very briefly in an interview uh, that he did some storyboards for the ride and that was it. And there might be, I think, a couple of places where it makes sense that he was involved. Um, like the opening, for example. So when you when you walk up to the uh, to the attraction and you step inside, that feels exactly like a George McGinnis thing, because the entrance was designed to look like an airport gate. Uh, right, so right. You would look out the windows, and there was the nose of a of a Delta, you know, seven twenty seven sitting there. Uh, I'll and correct it, you on that later. Oh, <laughs> that's right. It was a seven sixty seven. Seven sixty seven. Seven sixty seven, and a jet bridge. Although it yep. had sort of like rainbow neon on it, which a typical jet bridge doesn't have. Um, <laughs> and that there was travel posters, too, as you walked through the first queue area, which is where the first queue area for Buzz is now. There's travel posters like right. in the airport so that you were it, going to be embarking on somewhere. And that's a very George McGinnis type thing, because when you walked in, there were like there were two fake. I'm sorry, three fake gates with like gate numbers and sort of fake yeah. doors, uh, which is a very George McGinnis thing. He did that in Space Mountain and Disneyland, and he did it on Horizons to try to make it look like it was bigger than it was. So that's, that's where I think what I was gonna. That's what I was gonna interject and say for the benefit of our listeners who might not know who George McGinnis is. You keep talking about him like <laughs> he's like oh everybody must know this guy. So could you give the thirty second bio? Yes, so, so George McGinnis was a. He started out doing their transportation designs and he worked with like Bob Gurr and folks on a lot of the early Epcot stuff. But later on, he got involved with show design uh, and he, he designed Space Mountain in California as well as in Florida uh, and most famously Horizons. And that's who George McGinnis is. Um, he has quite, quite a long and interesting career. Uh, did a lot of. He actually did the monorails, I think, for Disneyland, like the Mark fives um so he's he's done a lot of stuff um now it was always lost on me that that was supposed to be like you were looking out of the glass windows of a of a plane like at a gate and i think it was because instead of the backdrop behind it being painted like an airport tarmac with Mm -hmm. you know like it was just kind of this nighttime scene with like this weird extended runway that kind of like shot up into space and then there was like a giant delta logo painted there yeah <laughs> and i i don't know if you know if I, if I put my what i probably think would happen i think they would have tried to set that up originally i think the idea was to make it look exactly like an airport gate but then someone probably decided like oh we need more placement for the delta logo mm-hmm. because there really wasn't one there even in the sign outside there wasn't like a very large prominent delta logo so no it was it was tiny off to the left so yeah that might have been really to push the sponsorship there yeah um so what they did is they took the zigzag queue that was part of if you had wings and basically wiped that out and that's where the the nose of the jet aircraft was 
And then uh, on the right-hand side, and when you walk, if you ever saw pictures, if you had wings, there was kind of like this large like globe of the Earth. It's like they reconfigured that space so where that, that globe was. On the outside, that became the waiting room with the fake doors that you could that you would see mm-hmm. uh, to go through. So that's where you said when you first walk into Buzz Lightyear. And now that entire space has been reconfigured and chopped right. up into smaller rooms. So now Buzz is kind of approximately where the nose of that aircraft yeah. was. Yeah, it's almost where the panorama was a, a little bit. And yeah, you're kind of walking through the nose when you're when you're walking past Buzz. So a little bit about the nose of the aircraft. So as, as Hal pointed out, they wanted to, to give you the impression that you're walking down a boarding gate. Um, ironically, that most people flew to Disney World, and here we are going to get on a flight. But uh, nevertheless, you walk down the, the neon-lit corridor, uh, and, and you, you board the 767 aircraft. Uh, it was a full-size uh, nose, I believe. Uh, um, let me record that. <clears throat> so the nose is a 767. Now, what's interesting about it, guys, is that I don't know if you remember what it said on on the front that was painted on there there was a specific saying um paint on the front which was spirit of delta now there's an interesting little story about the spirit of delta and, and why that was chosen uh after the airline deregulation um delta had a lot of profit problems and uh they, they posted their first loss in the early 1980s so this is 1989 so we are about seven years later um, but the delta employees started something called project 767 and this is pretty amazing that this was led by three flight attendants um, and between them, employees, retirees and friends, they raised $30 million to buy Delta, the very first 767 aircraft. And um, they presented it to Delta uh, later in 1982. Uh, they christened it the Spirit of Delta. And um, that's why the Spirit of Delta was chosen on there, because it's a real symbol of of you know the employees and everybody that got together to keep Delta flying and give them a new jet uh, that was more fuel efficient and ready to go. And the really cool thing is, the actual jet re- retired in 2006 after flying over m- almost 71,000 hours in the air. And you can visit the actual jet. It's been repainted into the original delivery livery, and it is at the Atlanta airport at the Delta Museum, which is cool. down there called yeah, which is called the Delta Flight Museum. So. If you want to board Dream Flight again, you can kind of do it. <laughs> so, can we pool our money and like yeah. make Disney build like Western River Expedition if all of us get together and <laughs> like raise one hundred twenty million dollars or something? This is like the very first crowdsourcing crowd. Yeah, funding, that's right? incredible. I mean, yeah, that's an incredible story. Bucks they they got together. So, yeah, that's a good idea. How we'll start a GoFundMe page. Pretty maybe, soon. maybe we should aim small and just. Uh, <laughs> build like just get orange bird back (laughs) well the orange bird costume yeah yeah, that's that's doable that that's a doable thing that's a good start yeah so i always got a kick out of that walking the 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 gate and going through through the aircraft and i always wanted to see like a cockpit or something like that but there was there was nothing nothing yeah but it is but it is a cool idea so i mean the idea is that you know because we're sort of doing with Delta Airlines, I think it really made a lot of sense to walk to look like you're in an airport and you yeah. you know go around into the concourse and then walk on the on the jet ramp like up into the airplane. I mean that's a very very good way to give you that experience in case you've never flown before. It gives you a little right. taste of like what what that's like.
So as you come into the loading platform, I always found this kind of interesting, how is that you, you come in and, and as you mentioned earlier, the loading hadn't really changed, the same Omnimover loading with the speed ramp. I always found it interesting that the mural there all of a sudden took you back to the 1920s. So you yeah. go through the jet age and you immediately are taken back to the dawn of, of flight history, of the history of flight. I'll tell you, it's it's very interesting. There's a lot of uh, non-linear back and forths in mm-hmm. this ride, <laughs> uh, where you think like, oh yes, it's a, you know the typical Disney ride is going to be. We start here, and then we go here, and then we go here. But they actually jump quite a bit uh, in the beginning. Uh, so let me tell you a little about the murals since yeah. since you mentioned it. So they always said like, oh, it's a 1920s airport. So I started diving in to do some research to try to figure out what airport it was because Delta started out in the 1920s, interestingly enough, in the, in the late 1920s, and they flew out of Dallas Love Field. So I thought it might have been that. So I found some old pictures from from that time period, <laughs> and they had a uh, their office was in uh, Louisiana. So I, I looked there. And it didn't match up with that. And so I started going crazy trying to figure out where in the heck is this airport that they're showing. And finally, I found it. <laughs> I found the really? airport. In, in of all places, Glendale, California. <laughs> wow. Not not the least bit surprising. <laughs> yeah. So here's, here's the thing. It is uh, the building is Glendale's Grand Central Air Terminal. And oddly enough, it is located directly behind the Walt Disney Imagineering offices on Flower Street. So <laughs> if you were to walk out of the back of Imagineering to grab a smoke, you could look across the street and see the back of, of this Grand Central Terminal right there. Um, which probably makes sense of like why it ended up there, because they were like, oh, we need to go. We want to show an airport. So they're like, oh, I know where one is. And they just went over and sketched directly from that. Um, just go out the back door. We got it. Yeah, we got, yeah, it we got this covered. Now, where they did kind of give a, at least one nod to Delta history is that they did take Delta's actual like little office building uh, that was located in on, in Monroe, Louisiana at Selman Field, and they painted it into the picture. So so it kind of becomes this fantasy meld of like Delta's actual office and this thing in Glendale. But uh, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, what's also interesting is Glend- or Disney actually owns that airport building now. Uh, they mm-hmm. bought that property up with a whole bunch of property around there. Uh, and they have a thing that they call their creative campus that's now in this like Grand Central Avenue district. And the old runway is now um, Grand Central or yeah, Grand Grand Central Avenue uh, is in the same place where the old runway was. And it's it's kind of a cool building if you find some, I'm sure we can put some pictures up and people can see uh, what it looked like because it's a pretty nifty building. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And now there's there's two planes on the mural. One is a Ford Trimotor. Uh, and actually, I was able to look at videos and see the license number is NC9683, which is an actual number from a real aircraft. Um, oh, wow. It was bought by Southwest Air uh, Fast... I'm sorry, Southwest Air Fast Express in Duncan, Oklahoma in, on June 15th, 1929. And it's now on display in the National Air and Space Museum. So you can actually see that real aircraft uh, hanging up in Washington, D.C., which is kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. now we got two We got two stops now on, on our uh, aviation tour of America. Yeah, I'm, and I'm going to make it three. Oh, awesome. So, so the second plane on there is a Travel Air S6000B. Uh, and that's painted with the Delta Air Service uh, sort of like markings on the side. And that is the actual aircraft that they used for their first flights. 
So that that was the real airplane that Delta Air Services started out with before they became Delta Airlines. Um, it held five passengers and two pilots, and Delta Air Services actually made its debut flight on June 17th, 1929. So it's totally within the time period of this like 1920s airport that they're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, it left from Dallas Love Field, went to Jackson, Mississippi. And you can see that Traveler, a Traveler S6000, also at the Delta Flight Museum, where that Spirit of Delta is. So they actually did incorporate a little bit of Delta history in here. It's funny, they're not real strict about Delta history. They take a lot of leeway with it. um, Because you would think like, oh, this is, you know, since it's sponsored by Delta, that the ride would be primarily be the history of Delta. Right. But it really is just sort of like an overview of air transportation and they stick in Delta where they can, but it's by no means uh, strict with Delta at all. Right, right. So we so we start to move forward and we get to what is now a giant disco ball with Buzz Lightyear spinning around, kind of giving you a sensation of moving faster than you really are. But there was an interesting, very tame yet uh, interesting pop up book scene that rotated and you actually had to go on the ride a couple times to see all three scenes because depending where you were on the omni mover you, you would see one thing but not the others yeah and it was literally shaped like a giant book <laughs> yeah with but yeah. if you if you picture it sort of like looking down it would look like i don't know like a tri it's kind of like a tri-fin thing so as yeah. as it spun it would expose a different face um back on if you had wings the omni movers actually turned to the outside and just looked at projections. So they actually had to kind of come up with something to stick in the middle there to give you something to look at because before you actually looked at the outside walls. Right. Um, and the the pop-up book kind of concept was neat. It actually, now that's where we start our aviation history. So it's got old-fashioned flying machines. It's got a balloon. It's got like a glider and then some kind of crazy fixed-wing aircraft. So that gets you into like that very first thing of like people messing around with with air travel and uh, it's very very whimsical reminds me of a lot of the, the the original decorations in the land actually yeah the way the that's way true that, you it know has, I mean? has a lot colors, of that organic very similar feel to yeah. it and then we move on to barnstorming The style used at the first part of Dreamflight in this barnstorming section is is very cartoony. It's it's very I mean it's literally cartoony. It's like someone took uh, you know flat drawings and like cut out pieces of metal and and assembled like the planes and the crowds and things out of it. Yeah, it's 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 a very effective and um, to get a better perspective on, on how it was done, um, we gave a call to Eric Vergarami. Uh, who's Imagineer Disney, and he actually worked in the uh, on this attraction, building it. And uh, here's what he had to say. I remember making the, the model work for the Barnstormers and working on the set and the, the rolling hills and the backdrops and all that little miniature model work stuff is what I was working on at that time. And and what was that actually? A lot of it was composed, I assume, of all different types of materials, but was it mainly you know wood and laminate and, and then hand-painted? Or how, how was a lot of that crafted? Because they're pretty big and some of them are flying so to speak on the you know from the ceiling or suspended so they've got to be pretty weighty too yes that's true and um the, most of the stuff was made out of wood and metal and um as lightweight as we could make it they were pretty delicate actually and thinking back on it right so we had like any number of materials at our disposal we could request anything we needed that we thought 
it was what was needed to make the project work. And so there's everything from steel, uh, sheet steel to uh, wire to plastics to woods to laminates, you know, on and on. But um, I remember Mark Binford, he was the head uh, painter at Tahunga then, and he was, he was the guy in charge of painting all that stuff. And it was all hand-painted, all those little props and scenes and uh, little planes and towers and little cartoon characters and all that stuff were, like, completely hand-painted. At the time, you know, we just uh, we produced the stuff to scale per blueprint and then send it over to his shop, and his guys would paint it up. So would you even have to put any general finish on it, like a, like a primer coat, or would they actually take care of that? You could give them something just raw metal and, and wood, or how would that Yeah, work? you could give it to them raw metal, and they would prime it. Um, in fact, he preferred that because he was really, really meticulous about paint application, adhesion, and, and everything being just by the complete book. So, you know, a few times you could sneak a, you know, a Krylon gray in, and it would be okay. <laughs> but for the most part, he had his auto body, you know, urethane filler primer coat that he wanted to use, and we just let him have it, you know. But uh, there was a lot of Bondo and a lot of sanding, so the stuff had to be ready for paint. Right, right. And and how long did an average, like, something like the biplane or the hills you spoke of, how long would something like that take to actually, you know, produce and get it ready for, for the paint shop? Yeah, it could take months, seriously, because, you know, you would be doing other projects, you'd devote, like, three hours on that, four hours on this, five hours on that, depending on how, how what the what the schedule of the need was. was. And I can guesstimate about 100 people working there at Tahunga in, in those departments, in the, in the props and sculpting and, and model-making departments. It wasn't that large of a team. We just made it, you know. We just, then no one ever, no, the hammer never came down on us about any kind of deadline. I saw some of the work that you did later on for that that project in City of Industry, and I mean, my gosh, you're doing incredible. Uh, what I assume are probably foam sculptures. So, yeah, foam so foam. just working yeah. on all the, the flat stuff for uh, for that barnstormer section must have been like, oh, come on, give me something real. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I always I always stole you know my my little got my little sculptural fix where I could. So like they they charged me with. Uh, like the barnstormer scenes, all those roly-poly hills, all had to be, they're actually like secret hatches. Each one, well, not all of them, but most of them, that whole thing was put together as a giant puzzle. It's like on, on like four-inch risers so that the animatronic and the gut and stuff could work below. And they needed a, a way that somebody could walk up onto the set in their socks and access if, in case there was a problem or anything. But at the same time, it had to look seamless. So one of the jobs I had was to, like, create the method as to what these rolling hills, how they could be hatches and also be part of the scenery at the same time. That's, that's cool. That, that's so cool. I, I saw, <laughs> I was watching a video of the final assembly that's on YouTube. Um, we'll have to send it to you at the end so you can see it. And the set is massive. I forgot how big it really is. Yeah. And, um they they never said you know here's here's how you should do it. I just had to come up with my own ways and, and means of how to approach that. And um, it was quite genius. I used veil fiberglass cloth and layers, and they sequentially kind of tapered out and just kind of like disappeared into the uh, the valley of the of the set, and then they would uh, disappear. <laughs> I um, want to go ride it and look for it now, but I can't. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> that is so I'm sure cool. it was lit, uh, lit into oblivion. But um, I remember that's when I uh, got to work a little bit with John Hench. Was you know he he came in uh, as he was the colorist for that and for that attraction, and so he was in kind of in charge of how the color worked. Um, what scenes were what color and the emotion that each color was going to bring out, you know, bright and happy, you know, mystical, dreamy, you know. And, and he was fascinated in that way because he had worked in all these legendary animations. And just to, just to have him just talking about, you know, what hues these things are going to be and for what reasons was really a treat. You know, at the time I was pretty awestruck by the whole thing it was like i can't believe i'm talking to this guy about you know how this thing's going to be lit and how the colors are going to saturate the scene you know and uh just every little thing he said was just like golden advice you know it that was one of the highlights of working on that barnstormer set yeah that it, it's a really neat scene and and yeah i remember going through and the, the cars would turn a little bit you'd see the this looked like a circus act or something on the left. And you had the, the, the guy, the other plane flying over on the right in the cornfields. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a really great scene, very whimsical in a way. You know, I, I, I like the scene. I, my favorite part on the left-hand side was the crowd as, as one row went left, the next <laughs> row behind it went right. And they were in, in sync in time. A couple of the effects were, you know, they were very basic. I thought, I always thought that the, um, there's a bottom part of the floor where the uh, I think there's an airplane turning in a circle or something like that, and and, and you could really see the hole in the floor. I felt yeah. that was a little little yeah. cheap. It's chasing um, some goats and some chickens on that. Yeah, something gag. like that. Yeah. Um, but the gag of going through the barn was 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 neat because you it very similar. You know, Brian, you mentioned Goofy's barnstormer, but there's a cutout hole as if an airplane went through the barn, which is at the end of the scene. At- at the time, Hal and I, I think, can attest that the reference would be more the Activision game Barnstorming, where you had to fly through the barn on your Atari I mean, maybe we should explain what Barnstorming is, because I'm not even yeah. sure if people know. So in the in the early 1920s, uh, before, before Delta actually started doing commercial aviation, um, pilots were able to buy these training aircraft called Jennies, and there was also a bunch of other companies that... Uh, that made all kinds of crazy like one officer two offices of airplanes so pilots were uh that were in world war one were able to pick up these planes like really cheap uh and they basically started crisscrossing the country and they would kind of get together or go solo and they would go into a small town and make a deal with a farmer to get use of their field as a as a landing strip and a takeoff strip and uh, they would put on shows they would put on air circuses and they would drop leaflets over the town of when they would have it set up and people would come out uh, to these air circuses and basically watch these pilots do crazy stuff uh, and they and give rides and do all kinds of things. There's there's a similar scene in World of Motion that's done, uh, you know, with real fully dimensional figures in a, in a giant biplane. And, and I wonder if maybe that's the reason they decided to go cartoony with this since the realistic thing was kind of already done over there. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, um, and it was it was actually accidents at the air shows um, that caused the government to begin regulating air travel, uh, and they came up with this thing called the Air Commerce Air Commerce Act of 1926. So that and Charles E. Lindbergh's flight to the Atlantic to Paris sparked an interest in commercial aviation, and that's kind of how we ended up uh, with more serious air travel and people being interested in doing that. Um, 
yeah, there was there was all kinds of neat little gags in there. There was like this Zeppelin balloon with like a guy in this sort of like bicycle thing that would pedal and it would turn the propeller behind it and that would make yeah, it go around. Yeah. Um, there were people playing tennis on the top of a biplane wing, which is actually something <laughs> that people did. Something, yeah, something they used to do. Yeah, crazy stuff like that. Um, and yeah. then right before that that barn thing that you're talking about, there's a farmer kind of looking up with a cow, and the cow would have this like question mark thought balloon pop up behind its head. Uh, as they looked at the hole in the barn. And then when you went into the barn, what did you see? There was the pilot with his parachute kind of dangling and going slowly up and down, looking a little uh, a little worse for wear. Yeah. Do you remember the <laughs> owl? There was an owl on his head, and you would hear this hoo, hoo, hoo <laughs> throughout like half of the ride as you got through that section. That's funny. Yeah. It's the, uh, the, the newsboy of, of Dreamflight. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a really good one. Um, so then, in the next room after you went through that, then they actually had like nice seventy millimeter footage of, of an actual real barnstormer yeah. uh, with like a, a wing walker stuck on top of a plane. And there's probably about two and a half minutes of footage. Uh, really nice, like POV shots, like with from a chase plane, so yeah. you can really see it close up. Uh, I mean, you think about this done in the early 80s before GoPros and drones and all that stuff. It's it's, it's done really well. And I, you know, if you focused on some of the screen, you got the sensation of, of, of flight and turning a couple of times. I remember as a kid just like focusing on real hard and whoa, yeah. know, doing a spin or something. There's the a, guys what, are nuts on the, the wing walkers are just nuts. Yeah. And there's one little place where he, the guy actually brings the plane down to a river and like touches the wheels against the water, kind of like... I guess in the future we would all do that in the first version of Soren, but <laughs> it was neat that that was like a real, <laughs> I guess like a trick that they used to do to impress people. So then, uh, so after done with barnstorming, now we move into some more commercial aviation, but a little bit further in history. Now we're getting into Pan American's Clippers. You would go by this this neat little sign it said global clipper spanning the world and it had a ro- an actual rotating globe so that way there'd be something with movement that would be interesting to look at uh there was a sign uh, directly above you that said gate to global clipper and then to the right hand side was like a little uh i don't know like a sandwich board and it said uh, august 30th 1937 uh flight 801 to tokyo and paris leaving at 9 p.m at least I think it was 9 p.m. I'm trying to make it out. I, it kind of looks like a.m., but it doesn't make any sense because the next scene actually takes place at night. So 9, 9 p.m. is the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly, magically, we're in we're in San Francisco. Um, we see a couple on a dock, uh, kind of hugging and looking out at the uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, which is a complete lie because. Uh, <laughs> Where, uh, where the globe, where the, well, I should say there were actually multiple clipper ships, uh, but where the, the actual dock was where you'd get on was, was in the Bay in San Francisco, uh, on a place called, uh, Treasure Island, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way it was positioned, uh, you, it was, it's right physically like right up on the Oakland bridge there, the, uh, the San Francisco Oakland bridge. So yep. you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to see the Golden Gate Bridge uh, from that particular location. So I'm going to give that to like artistic license yeah. to to make the scene more romantic. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, and, they, they did a great job with the actual ship itself. Right, and it, those are probably wondering why we're we talking about an island in water, is that the China Clipper was a Martin 130 aircraft. Um, they were built in, in the early 19, mid-1930s. Uh, and they actually landed and, and took off on water. Uh, and we also talked about uh, this with Eric because he was on the crew who um, who built this mock-up, if you will, of, of in the scene. And uh, he, he details a lot of it and how it was uh, one of the most, you know, interesting scenes, incredible scenes in this ride. Well, once again, you know, all wood. You know, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's all wood made to look like uh, clad steel with like millions of rivets, you know. Um, it was about bender board, poplars, luons. Um, the uh, the internal structure of the, the structure of the plane was uh, like you would make a traditional plane, a model plane, but enlarged. So it was all you know laminate uh, plywoods cut out into the profiles, and then we basically clad the thing inside and out in luons and poplars, and uh, you know a little magic rivet work, and you know once again it all came apart. Like the wings would come apart, and the the way that these these aluminum well they weren't they were actually wood, but um, the real one I think were aluminum or steel would would go into the plane in these kind of morpheus blobby kind of elegant I don't know, receiving, and they would and the and the carpenters couldn't really figure out this huge complex curvilinear shape in wood, and so um, my task was to uh, create that and it was just a pure sculpture just out of epoxy putty you know so I just went to town on that so if you look at the receiving ends of those on the plane and I don't know if you can get any video of that but uh, that's all epoxy putty work I know that wow and the rest was all wooden interiors and then the animatronics would go in there I right. think they were static though but um, then the set dressers would come in and then the special effects guys would come in and do the lights and the scrims and the ocean effects and the sounds and, uh, I mean, it was really, I mean, we, we mocked that one up into Hunga, and it was magical. It oh, really yeah. was. Even, even in a warehouse, you know, you were instantly transported onto that plane, and you were sitting there on the dock, you know, on the bay, the water's twinkling. And, I mean, the whole thing was mocked up, like, just beautifully. Yeah, and it, then was, it, it was, was beautiful. The next day, the lights came up. Yeah, just dismantle it and put it in crates and ship it to Florida. <laughs> Now, what yeah, about the what about the engines? Did you um, were, were those sculpted from from wood parts as well? I think there was yeah. one or two that you, so that was all wood. There was no metal used there. Wow. Yeah, it was all wood, shaped and bent. But uh, like I had mentioned earlier, they, they actually worked off the actual blueprints of the giant clipper. So it was a pretty exacting replica. In the attraction, it's called the Global Clipper, which was interesting. So I, we was wondering if maybe China Clipper was still under the rights of, a, of an airline or something. It might be. I know that when we worked on it, we knew it as the China Clipper. So, the, you know, I wish we could say that you could go see the China Clipper in, you know, the actual one and, and add that to our, our aircraft tour here. Uh, unfortunately, in 1945, um, it was on a second approach to land. It hit the water too low. Um, it impacted and broke the hole in two. It flooded and sank, and um, a number of lives were lost. So uh, it only lasted about 10 years or so. But uh, I don't think there's any other M130s around. I'll have to look that up. No, that, they actually built one. three. Yeah. Martin built three of them for, for um, Pan American Airlines, and all three of them are now like 
destroyed. And it, it took right. a long. Some of them went into the war, and and lasted a while after. But um, they are not around anymore. And I, I think that's the reason they went with Global Clipper. They had about I think like six ships in total. So there was like the Hawaii Clipper, the yes, <laughs> China Clipper, the this Clipper, the that Clipper. So I think they kind of condensed it into just the general concept of a Clipper and called it the uh, Global Clipper to kind of right. give you that idea. They they also never went to uh, to Paris. Well, they never went to Tokyo either. Uh, <laughs> the route went from Hawaii to, uh, over some some islands because uh, they had to stop because back then it's like they couldn't hold a lot of fuel, so they'd have to kind of island hop. Yeah. So they'd go to Hawaii and then eventually Manila and Hong Kong, but never Tokyo or Paris. So this this section's like again they fudged the truth a little bit uh, yep. to make it you know a little bit more interesting. So I oh. wonder if there's there's anything having to do that. So as you're coming up the ramp there, the, the Omni Mover goes in to actually, quote unquote, board the aircraft and move, move through it. Um, the departure board says August 30th, 1937, flight 801. And the time is, it looks like 9 p.m. of departure at gate two. <laughs> so there we go. But uh, coming into the aircraft is really, I mean, this inside is is pretty amazing i mean i think they did a fantastic job um you're if you look off to the right where the where the nose of the aircraft is there's kind of this mural uh if you will you know where where the cockpit would be but your omni mover vehicle turns to the left and you're looking down a, a very um well-appointed dining section of the global clipper uh there's three tables on your left another one on your right and there's a a gentleman that, uh, but he, he doesn't uh, he doesn't move. I always found that scene as, as well appointed as the aircraft was, and the lighting is fantastic. The decorative you know, decorations is, is to the T, but he doesn't move. It's, it's, it makes it a little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> do you agree? <laughs> I, I do. I was, that was I think one of my initial disappointments. Writing is like, oh, he's. I mean, he looks like a dime store mannequin. He's not. Yeah. Finished to a way that it looks very, re- and you're close enough that you can kind of tell, you know, it's not like right. it's very far away. The other um, interesting thing is I always thought is that why they placed them on the right hand side, because as soon as you go past a little bit, there's that galley area with this, this, I, I think I'm, I'm going to assume that it's a, a, some sort of structure for the building that they've hidden inside of a mm-hmm. um, quote unquote por- portion of the aircraft. Right. But I always wondered why they placed him on the right hand side, because if he'd been on the left, you would have seen him a, a longer time. But it could have been as you're coming in, you see him more. I don't I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. I, there's actual photos of the interiors of those M130s, and it doesn't look anything like that. But, <laughs> I mean, as because in that thing, it's actually like these wicker chairs and like free freestanding tables with like glass tops, which I assume would be a nightmare <laughs> if you're actually traveling in there. That's right. The, the ones in the real M30 were these kind of like, uh, they were bolted, at least the tables were kind of bolted to the walls and had uh, like fixed posts kind of at the end. So that way they wouldn't be like flapping around if you had some turbulence or something. <laughs> um, but again, it's again, it's that ro- they're trying to give you that romantic idea of how different air travel was. And when you did get a, I mean, you used to, even as I was a kid, it's like they used to serve you full meals. Oh, yeah. on airplanes it wasn't just like a bag of peanuts and a and a coke it's you you actually got steak and like nice full things well some some other delta side trivia so delta didn't actually fly trans-pacific until they bought uh western airlines in 1987 so delta never went to the orient at all and they didn't go to london or or anything in europe until 1978 uh eight 
when the airlines were deregulated. I'm sorry, 1970. Yeah, 1978 when the airlines were deregulated. Because I guess, Brian, they used to actually like assign routes to like certain companies. Well, that, that, that's what deregulation was all about. When the airlines were regulated, I mean, literally they were assigned a market like this is the air, you know, TWA flies from mm -hmm. Kansas City to Philadelphia. And that was it. Like TWA set their price, which was regulated. And, you know, that's why we talked about that in the early episode when Todd talked about his first trip. And the ticket price back then was what the commonplace equivalent of what six or seven hundred dollars. Yeah, it's two hundred coach two hundred and thirty dollars back in nineteen eighty. Yeah, for a coach seat to go to New to go to Orlando. Yep. Which today anybody who saw it for more than two hundred and fifty dollars, like, that's the most crazy thing I've ever heard. I'm not paying that. But back then, you know, it was you know we we talked about it. air travel was extremely expensive before deregulation because there was no competition. Yeah, the other thing I thought was interesting is the way that a lot of these airlines started, like back in the 1920s, is they actually got uh, mail routes from the U.S. Postal Service mm -hmm. that they were assigned. So basically, that's what kept these companies solvent, and then the passengers were kind of like an extra bonus because uh, back then the first Delta flight was like ninety dollars one way or i'm sorry 90 dollars round trip for that little hop between like louisiana and texas and like well, i cannot imagine what that would be in like today's dollars and that's the same model that uh the the, the ocean liners used i mean the, back in the day the primary transportation of the ocean liners was moving overseas mail back and forth that's why the rms titanic is royal mail ship titanic they're oh yeah they're, they were they were all they were all to carry mail and then they you know started outfitting them for passengers and yeah so that, that was it's a, there's always been a commerce aspect to these to this transportation stuff interesting i did not know that about so somebody lost their mail on the titanic trip then So we get off the Global Clipper, and we're uh, we're in Japan. So I don't know if the average American would have considered visiting Japan in 1937 after they mm. invaded China and did a whole bunch of other kind of not so great stuff as during the run up to the war. But let's just say for the sake of argument that that they did. So we uh, we landed this very well done scene, uh, and there's a f the part that a lot of people forget is. Uh, when you first come into the scene, um, what you have in front of you is like this giant, uh, you know, two-story, three-story Japanese house, like up on a mountainside. And there's this long bridge that, that goes across. And there's this couple, a uh, Japanese couple in traditional clothing there. But to your left, there was a photographer taking their picture, like a tourist who was there taking a snapshot of them. And people often forget about the photographer guy. Um, but the set was gorgeous. So as as cartoony as this barnstormer section was, the next two scenes, this in in Tokyo and in Paris, are these incredibly detailed, beautifully done scenes with forced perspective to, that makes everything look you know much larger than it was in reality. And and the lighting, the lighting on it was fabulous too. And yeah, really that was all the, like moonlight, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The whole the whole ride has a sense of almost like a gallery as you move from artist to artist. The diff each each different portrait or scene is a is a, repre a different representation of an artist's work, uh, and they're very distinct. Uh, 
but that that's that's the feel that I get as you move from scene to scene because there's you're you're right there's there's no real um, consistency between them, but it doesn't bother you either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially the way like the films interspersed between it, it is very collagey, I guess. And, and we haven't really touched on the song. But the song ties it all together, yeah, yeah, and then stays with you for about thirty years. <laughs> it's impossible to get out of. Um, so, and 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 for this point, if people are wondering, we we the um, Japanese uh, section here where you're in Japan uh, is is located about where uh, or where the spaceship is now on your left hand side, and then as we turn towards Paris, which is on our right, we're going to talk about. That's where Zerg is in his in his spaceship. So one of, getting ready for one of the you know the final battle of everybody gets Zerg. This that's oh. where Paris was. All right. Well, that actually gives you a good idea of how much space was there then for them to work with. Yep. Because there are some places where it's very constrained, and some other places where there's a little bit more room. But yeah, so pa- Paris was another beautiful little section so you came in sort of gliding along the rooftops uh by the hotel dolphin which was located at uh 54 or something it said like 54 hotel dolphin 54 um and there's a painted backdrop of of sunset in paris um you can see the arch de triomphe on the right hand side and you can see the uh you can see the eiffel tower on the left i tried to figure out whether or not there was kind of like a real location where our viewpoint could be where we could see both things in perspective i can't find it i'm 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 not going to say it's it's completely made up but i'm have this feeling it was again it was this art directed thing to make it look much more beautiful it is but you see this beautiful scene of of like these small scale buildings and you're kind of gliding around the roof you can look down one street and you can see this little tiny like French baker coming out of his place with like a basket full of bread. And then uh, if you kind of look real close down the track um, by the edge of the building, you could see this couple sitting at a, at a cafe having dinner and these little figures, I mean, they can't be more than a foot tall, but they're so well detailed and so well painting. They look absolutely realistic. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous little scene. And yeah, the, the whole backdrop, the way that it's lit and the way that the force perspective is, it, it's amazing. You feel like you're on, you know, like you said, on the rooftop, but you feel like you're looking down the hill and you can see the Arc de Triomphe in the, in the distance and the, and the Eiffel Tower. It's done, done so well. Really, really there's well. A, there's not a lot of scenes like that anymore that, that, that uh, are, are done that way. But no, yeah, no. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then as you, you glide past there, um, now you're kind of, it seems like you're you're kind of like in a full-scale environment very briefly there's some of those like kiosks that you would see like in in france with like the posters and stuff plastered on the side yes and uh they have this little like rotating band at the top that says jet age and i think the uh the voiceover tells you something about how you're like moving on to the jet age and you should prepare and then that's when you fly into The turbine. Yes, the jet engine. This has to be one of the coolest effects that has ever been put together in a uh, in any type of attraction. Um, so as you turn, you see this 
cowling of a, of a, of a 767 engine that's about, I'd say, three quarters or so, um, and a very kind of abstract painting of uh, the rest of an air, a Delta aircraft and the wing coming off to the engine cowling. Yeah, it's all in this crazy perspective. But, yeah, you know, it's a it very odd perspective. But the idea is that you're you're going into the jet age. So what better way to do it is than to just throw yourself right into the spinning fan blades of an engine. <laughs> <laughs> now, for those of you that remember, I know a lot of us do remember Maelstrom. A very similar effect was used on the eye as you climb lift hill. Um, but this basically ne- never turned off, but it was uh, white beams of light that replicated a uh, spinning fan blade of a jet that were emanating from a single point of light uh, further in the distance, and they had a fog machine going. And I loved it. I mean, it was, I, I, even on even on the crappy video that's out there, it still looks good, you know? It's so cool. It is it's really, so cool. really cool. And there's a remnant of it left in the ride today. That's right. In Buzz Lightyear, when you go through that same scene, uh, they use it for I don't know what it is. It's supposed to be laser shooting at you or something. And it's red. It's red now. It was yeah, working. Yeah, it's red. It's re- it's it's red now. Yeah. Uh, but but there's they did leave the the effect, but it's nothing like what what it was in Dream. I mean, it was just it was the thing you really came out of the ride talking about. Yeah. Like, boy, wasn't that scene cool? Yep. Now I seem to recall that that was the same effect as what used to be at the top of Spaceship Earth right before you went into space, which. We talked about on the Spaceship Birth episode that there used to be an effect there with fog, and then they removed it. Yeah, see, the only the only one that I remember was the Cronkite era, and that was when the tubes well, they had all the neon tubes and the lights and stuff. That so I, I never I never saw the previous versions to that. So okay. we'll have to see if we can find any old uh, old artifact old uh, video of that. See, yeah. And now, after you go through the jet, it's finally time to get to our old favorite. The speed room. Yeah. <laughs> so the in the in the first version of it, once you, it kind of makes sense, I guess. Once you get through here, it, it would tell you to get ready for like either supersonic travel or transonic travel or something like that. We we're starting to head into the future, and it was this computer graphic rendered like runway that was infinite that you would just keep going down the runway and keep going down the runway and then at some point they switched it over to actual filmed footage of a runway and then flying through clouds which is probably a little bit more interesting than just like continually looping through one runway footage like you're a scooby-doo character like running on the background (laughs) or something (laughs) i i like that i i remember my grandfather he'd go as you go (laughs) flying down the runway and and some of it was great it felt like you were flying in fact the speed punt tunnel now with Buzz, I mean, you know, you're just looking for that one spot to shoot all the time to get the points. But it do- it doesn't. It has a little bit of speed, but I don't think it feels as good as good as the. Yeah, the, and the, the just original. for, I don't know if they do it in Buzz anymore. But the trick used to be when you went into the speed tunnels, uh, when you came in, uh, they would kind of shake the Omni Mover a little bit to the left and right, mm. like every so often. And they actually had you could just look over the side. They had fans stuck yes. on the side of the track that's that right would, that would blow on you so that way like you would feel like the wind was going through your hair <laughs> very sophisticated technology hey it worked right yeah it worked fantastic um okay so after after the speed room you would come out into the room where buzz i'm sorry i did it again <clears throat> after the speed room you would come out into the room where the uh sort of like that robot octopus is uh, but instead of being able to look at the whole room, they would actually just 
turn you over to the side where sort of the aliens are today. And they had another movie uh, that played of sort of this computer graphic. view of like you start out in earth's orbit and then you'd sort of dive down into this futuristic city which which at that time uh as was popular with all the computer graphic things it's like the city was made almost entirely out of chrome and lights and they were sort of like floating orbs and fireworks going off and like everything that you could actually do with computer graphics in in 1988 like pretty reasonably uh and after you'd fly through this very shiny city, it's like then it would kind of go back to the beginning and go back out to the Earth's orbit again. Um, but it's, you know, it worked. It was it was effective. It was, very again, 70 millimeter, like very large screen uh, pointed directly at it. So it sort of gave you that futuristic idea. And then um, as you finished up, um, you would go to the section where I guess you get your high score now. Delta welcomes you back from your dream flight, the fantasy flight of your life. Once you've taken a dream flight, the Earth's an inspiring sight. There's adventure. At the end, and there was a giant, um, sort of a pop-up book um, that would open and close between two pages. Well, I shouldn't say open and close. I just say it would open and kind of flip between two pages, and um, go back and forth. This thing was uh, there was one was a, a picture that was actually somewhat dimensional of New York. And then on the other side, as the page turned, it would do this pop-up of London. Um, and it would kind of go back and forth between the two of those. And New York and London were kind of like two of the big hubs that uh, Delta had at the time. So they were kind of very subtly advertising like two of their major destinations that way. And then uh, as you came off of that, you'd head over to the unload ramp and uh, your dream flight was done. It was over. And the, the off the as you got off the ramp there was no mural or anything there it was just kind of the delta stripes with the delta logo yeah uh, on the wall on the right hand side um now another interesting thing about this attraction i wanted to talk about was that this actually had to change some of the diorama view uh up on the people mover um so i I think what's interesting is that um you know i think over the years the sets originally for if you had wings were made so that you could see it from the people mover and then as we got into dream flight um the first window actually got re- replaced with uh backlit panels that depicted the barnstorming scene right because whatever everything was set up you couldn't see it anymore so that was our first loss um the second window looked down on uh, the parisian scene and I, I don't remember it being that great <laughs> i think you had it was it was a stretch to see it well with all things forced perspective once you're out of the perspective that you're meant to sure. see it in you know, but I'm t- I, I remember having to kind of crane my neck to look, you know, look. it was there. It was there. Right. Um, and then apparently the third one would have had us looking at an extremely bright light. So they blacked it out. So I think one of those <laughs> has been reopened for for buzz. I, I don't recall. We'd, I'd have to go and try. Uh, the second one you can look down and see, I believe, on the right hand side, you, you can see one of the big rooms with the shooting stuff. Or maybe it's the yeah. first one. I can't remember off the top. Of yeah, my head. the Barnstormer one's open again because I know you can, you can see into that one. So. Um, but it's just kind of interesting how, you know, a, a, a attraction change. It's like, oh, yeah, we got windows up there. Well, it doesn't <laughs> match up, so we'll just cover it up. <laughs> We're just not going to. So as much as we think about stuff. Um, 
so the ride, as, as we know it, as we talked about Dreamflight, um, it, it went from 1989 to the end of 1985. And at that point, uh, Delta decided to pull out from sponsoring uh, Walt Disney World, um, claiming that it was due to the cost of them sponsoring the Olympics. Uh, that aircraft that we talked about, the Spirit of Delta, was actually repainted, not in the attraction, but the actual aircraft was repainted um, to, uh, to advertise the Olympic Games in Atlanta. Um, and then um, for a while, the, the, the attraction was named Dream Flight, trying to figure out what to do with it. But in June 1996, it was uh, reopened as take, take Flight. And they basically stripped all of Delta's uh, logos and, and some of the theme songs were re-recorded uh, to take out the, the, the Delta lines that were in there and, and any uh, notion to, to that. And uh, it ran that way uh, until 1998, and that was the end of it when it closed. Uh, we had uh, Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin come in. Um, I have fond memories of it. I, I really enjoyed it. It was one of those walk-ons all the time towards, even in the beginning, I don't think there was a tremendous amount of a line for it. Do you ever remember waiting more than five, ten minutes, Al? Yeah, I've been, I've was, you know, there were a lot of days when you'd basically walk in and just go right on to the the jet ramp and and walk yeah. up but i can i can recall some days when it was busy enough that you would actually use the the extended queue like they were, in okay the, in the little yeah yeah, yeah. oh and we, you know we think about like new, new years and things yeah. like that <laughs> you know this opened just two months after the studios disney mgm studios opened um it's interesting to see that this type of attraction you know was was still something they, they would put together in 1989 because they, they wouldn't you know do something like this today um and uh, you know but it, it i don't know it lasted a while you know we got we got almost 10 10 years out of it in inclusive uh um, yeah you know of take flight and like i said i always enjoyed it yeah and it is actually interesting that this was constructed at the same time that everything for disney mgm was being made yeah uh so you know right during the in the facilities and is it tahunga is that the proper way to say that it's like they were they were building you know pieces of uh, the great movie ride alongside pieces of dream flight that's right yep um yeah, and so if you're if you're in that first scene where you're taking flight in that ride you'd have to look out to the left and you might get a view of roy's cabin <laughs> <laughs> and and we should talk about the fabulous theme song too because yeah, the, what, so, the song is really great what do we have about that so it was written by bob moline the same guy that wrote energy you make the world go round and a lot of the other epcot songs listen to the land but yeah it's very it's very catchy the lyrics change from room to room so when they're in the barnstorming sing scene they're singing about that uh and then as it as it moves into the the global clipper area era it turns into this kind of like instrumental 1930s version uh this kind of like benny goodman style thing uh, benny goodman that might be right just like a swing just a swing style and then in japan it actually becomes this uh uh, like a Kyoto version of it that's like slightly slowed down and it's they did a great job you know adapting it uh, for all the different sections uh, in Paris it has you know there's accordions and a, that kind of a feel and then but there's interesting enough there's like a completely different song at the end um, yeah that's right. which I believe is written in the same key and I have yet to like I want to play them like on top of each other to see if they like are completely woven together because you know, a lot of times when you're on these rides, like, you know, it's a small world thing. It's like 
they talk about how uh, when they first did Small World, it's like they wanted the kids to sing their own national anthems, and it was just this terrible cacophony. <laughs> so, uh, so that's when they had the Sherman Brothers write "It's a Small World." In theory, you know, two different songs playing simultaneously, there'd be some point where the audio would clash. Um, but uh, it seems like once you get past the, the the jet takeoff, like when you're in the future city. And then at the end, it's like there's a different song that plays, um, but it still seems to work very seamlessly with the one at the beginning, even though it's quite different. So I wonder, if, I wonder if you played them at the same time, if it would sound terrible or if it would all meld together beautifully. You know, it's very, it's very reminiscent of um, World of Motion too, because they 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 did that in, the, in that attraction too, where all those different types of music somehow in all the different scenes at a different type or different in a different style. And it all all worked out. You never you never caught on to to any breaks or anything. Yeah, yeah. Even though Haunted Mansion does, I mean, that was to me the like the classic instance of that. It's like where you can hear bits of it, like the opening stuff still sort of melds in seamlessly with Grim Grating Ghosts. And by the time yep. you get to you know the ball or not the ballroom, but by the time you get to the graveyard, it's like it's got the full blown version. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us on Dream Flight. And uh, guys, we have not talked about in a while the films that we restore. And um, we used to sit here and watch them and talk about them and kind of do a a play-by-play. But um, we released a number of them since the last time we talked. So I figured this would be a good time to kind of go through. Um, Brian, you sat down. The the play-by-play is not a segment of the show that anybody says, hey, I really wish you guys would bring that back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, the the first one to talk about is 27 minutes. (laughs) So I don't think we need to go through all 27 minutes of a film. But For our first-time listeners, just, you know, Todd restores films, and that's that's kind of a big part of the website if you've only listened to the podcast. Yeah. It's a good point, JT. So, so as he pointed out, we we buy on eBay, and this is how Brian and I got to know each other: is that we buy on eBay and flea markets and other sources, uh, people's old old movies that have been lost to estate sales and such, um, and we digitally transfer them and um, clean them up, color correct them, take out the shake, and and release them uh, on our website for everybody to enjoy. And they're they're time capsules, you know, and and some of them we never know what we're going to get, and uh, in them we've discovered a lot of neat things about. Um, about Disney World that, that some of us never knew, or it's confirmed some rumors and some some thoughts and and stuff. So we've got four that we're just going to kind of give a real quick overview. Um, and uh, if you're interested in seeing these, just go right to retroww.com, and in the films and video drop down, there's a restored films option. Just click that, and you'll have them all listed. So quite a few of them. Um, the first one I want to talk about is Art and Linda. You know, and their visit to the Magic Kingdom in 1974. Uh, you know, this one, as, as you say, Brian, you, Brian writes all the articles about them, and he says uh, the, it's a magnum opus of a 27-minute visit with sound uh, to Walt Disney World in November 1974. Uh, it, well, Art, it, Art must have spent all of his disposable income on film and developing. <laughs> I mean, uh, Todd and I know how expensive. The, it's like a $300 film yeah. back in 1974. And then the time to edit it sit there in your in your room and cut and paste it all literally cut and paste the film together um it's it's really neat but there's there's some um, really fantastic footage of tomorrowland there's uh he's on tom sawyer island painting remember that guys he had his yeah they used the to have a like a toy not a toy but a but a faux paintbrush set up so that it looked like you were painting the fence as as in the in the book tom sawyer yep huck finn yeah and the neat thing about 
Art and Linda's, we just didn't get one of their visits. We actually got a, a visit after this. This was their honeymoon. We got a 1975 visit when they had their first child. Then we had a 1976 or 77 visit with two children. We have a and Christmas we got time. their wedding. Yes, we accidentally <laughs> did. We really? I was just about to joke. We got their wedding video. We did. We accidentally restored their wedding. Film Not even us. knowing, I sent it in for transfer, and it came back. And Oops. I'm going through everything to restore. I'm like, this doesn't look like, and I just. <laughs> sent the reel in by by complete accident. this was pre-wedding chapel if anybody watches this and knows or recognizes art and linda uh let us know because we'd love to send them their restored wedding footage yeah exactly it's all ready to go i'd like to find art and linda before the end of 2018 i think that can be a goal for us it there gives we go us a year and a month to figure this out yeah I mean, come on we have a pretty good listener base that's right get on it if you find us, Art and Linda, I feel like we'll send you a special prize. <laughs> you connect that's right. us like an <laughs> FBI reward here, you know? That's right. Or um, information leading to the findings of Art and Linda in a yeah. nice way. So the, the next film we got here, I, I called it Magic Kingdom Meet and Greet 70s style. And, and Brian, when you, you, you had an astute eye when you, you pointed out that it was 9.45 a.m. around Christmas time when they, when they went in and Main Street was really empty. Um, but what my takeaway from this was how interesting all the meet and greets were. This is a family of, I think there were five children, four girls and, and, uh, and a young boy that looks about, you know, 11 or 12. And, um, boy, they, they met up with the three little pigs and Mickey Mouse and Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear and Chippendale. But the, the characters were interesting in their actions to say the least. Wouldn't you, uh, agree? Well, I, I mean, both the guests and the characters were a little more jokey and handsy and yeah. uh, played up to the camera more than you see today. I mean, obviously, everything over the years have developed into uh, there's a handbook of what they can and can't do. And a lot of that probably developed from what they did do back in the 70s. And Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. Mickey seems to take a, a little goosing or something on the side, and uh, there's certainly <laughs> some dancing of the three little pigs that doesn't look exactly uh, what you'd see today. But just one too many lawsuits in the <laughs> this happened, and yeah, that just exactly. Disney was like, "Let's standardize exactly." This. But if if you are a character hunter or you enjoy the character greetings, this is a great film to see uh, how it was back in the seventies and, and what they did. Um, and again, this is from, I, I believe it was 74, somewhere in there as well. I, I don't think there's anything that officially dates the film. Um, but it is neat because all the um, the family is, it's all, you know, you see them going through. And I think there's even a boyfriend hanging out with them as well. Um, but good, some great shots uh, overall. And the film was in, in relatively really, really good shape. All right, and um, the third of the four that I want to talk about is uh, we, we found a copy of A Visit to Epcot Center, which many of you have seen on video before, but it was also released in on film. And, uh, Brian, we stumbled across this one. I, it looks better than any video copy out there, that's for sure. Well, sure. Uh, obviously, you know, film doesn't degrade the way that video does if it's properly stored and you're lucky. lucky. And uh, in our case, we got a pretty good print that after we worked our magic on it, uh, it really looks terrific. Uh, other than the audio being a little crackly, but it does, as you note, give us a vintage movie feel to the mm. production. Uh, but this was the really the first full promotional film of Epcot Center that Disney produced. And on a 16 millimeter reel, it would have been sent around to schools or to civic groups. 
um, used in you know the Lions Club or something like the Kiwanis or something to be shown uh, to promote the park. And uh, it's really well done. We, we, we held it for Epcot's 35th anniversary. All the attendees to our event got early access to it. And, uh, and then we released it to everybody else a couple days later. And uh, really, you should take the time to go and watch it because it's going to be better quality than anything you've seen on YouTube or anywhere else uh, of the videos that people have converted. It's, uh, it's a great glimpse of the park in its first year. Yeah, and it's from 1983. So for those that know Epcot well, you, you won't see anything of Living Seas in here because this was produced in 1983 and, and that opened in 86. Um, and the Horizons isn't really so much footage as it is pictures of uh, the con concept artwork uh, as well as some models and stuff like that. But, um, you know, a lot of the footage you'll recognize is some great construction footage of, you know, them lifting things and the dinosaurs and signs going up. And uh, it's, it's, it's really good, good pieces, Brian pointed out. So it, it really puts you back to when Brian was saying this. Yeah, it went to like a Lions Club. I'm like, why would they send it to a Lions Club? And you have to think this was pre-internet, pre, you know, sharing a video easily and that sort of stuff. Like, it's, it's just weird to me to think that, that they just would send out a big reel of film. Yeah. And don't forget pre Michael Eisner they did no advertising there right. was um, never any ad Disney never bought advertisements or commercials so they they did things like this and shipped them around yeah um, now did it ever go to like travel agents or anything or like they just sit there, like, yeah. would just set you up in the 80s and you'd sit there and watch well, this whole film or right so what they would do is and actually our local AAA our regional AAA still does this they have like travel expos where mm. literally you go and there's the cruise table and there's the Disney vacation table and somebody selling, you know, Mexican all-inclusive resorts and things like that. And so you kind of go around and pick up brochures and you can talk to representatives. And that's the kind of thing that they would, they were far more common back then when there was no internet or any of that. And so they would regularly hold like travel ramas or travel expos where films like this would be shown. And the other interesting thing too, JT, is that this eventually became the VHS copy. They they turned this into a VHS video that you could buy in Epcot in the early days, and that was very similar to the old take home souvenir films that you do. You go home oh, and yeah. play it for your friends. The same film was was converted onto video. Uh, you take it home and play now, it. Now, Todd, yes, it wasn't just put on VHS. Oh, that's right. Betamax. You could buy it on Betamax. Too. Betamax, yes, yes. That's so awesome. there were different. Which would have been higher quality than VHS. Yeah, yeah, so if you find it, I do occasionally see the Betamax version for sale. And yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, while they were higher quality, Betamax didn't hold up any better than VHS in terms of the videotape. Yeah. So. Uh, so the last one we want to talk about is uh, one we just released. Uh, well, you're listening to this later on, but we just released it yesterday, uh, which is one person went to the Polynesian and Contemporary Resorts um, in 1974. Seems a recurring theme here. Um, but they did, we don't see this often guys is, you know, generally we get a little bit of resort footage, you know, Bobby's jumping in the pool or, you know, so-and-so's walking down the path, but somebody stood there and did these awesome slow pans from the dock and radio, even just in the green area panning their fabulous pieces of footage. They are. And, and part of what they're capturing is, you know, we're used to thematic immersion now at places, whether it's Rainforest Cafe or or something like that. There are there are places closer to home where you can go and really get immersed in a in a in a theme. 
And back then, it was far less common and far less well done. So when Disney built this and, you know, before the additional buildings, because this is before um, three of the longhouses were built uh, that are there today that were built in 78 and 85. This is before, uh, obviously, there's no little huts on the water like there are now or any of that stuff. Right. Uh, so there was big open stretches around the thing with palm trees and, and then the, the, the beach, Sunset Beach was out there and all that. You know, it really, people walked in just completely blown away by the feelings that they were, you know, in, the, in Polynesia, in the, in the islands, uh, when they were in this resort. And so we do occasionally come across somebody so enamored with it that they take minutes and minutes of footage of, of just the resort. And we really lucked out in finding this one because it just gives a great um, feel for what the resort was like back then. Right. And, and what's really neat is that it's a time capsule also of what the marina area was like. There are no less than 25 boats parked in the marina from Bob around, <laughs> water sprites, sunfish, catamarans they had these yeah. small catamarans you could take out and then as the as the camera does its second pan it goes off to the beach area and there's a number of other there's four or five sailboats parked there as well that you could rent um i mean that's a fleet of just you know 30 some just at one resort so again as yeah. i point out this is just not something you saw often at a resort and it was it, it was you know very exciting to those taking this yeah and, and it does lend to the fact that at the time there was one theme park it was generally open, you know, for one working shift most days, you know, nine to six or, or 10 to seven or so. sometimes they were open later for fireworks, but it yeah. wasn't a it wasn't a daily thing. Uh, and so people didn't spend the whole day every day if they were there for three or four days or a week uh, in the parks. They they did some time in the park, but they really were marketing the golf and the, the water sports out there. There was water skiing and swimming and then all the different watercraft and the nighttime booze cruises and everything else that they yeah. did. Yeah. Um, and th this is actually something that I, you know we've done as a family. We, we You forget when you go down there often everybody wants to rush to the parks, but the resorts still are a great place to spend a day. Um, so you know, this is a time I think when people obviously, as you pointed out, Brian, they, they did do that because of the limited time. But now everybody's so rushed to go into the parks, they kind of forget that these options are still there. So next time you're there, relax a little bit like it's 1974. So I'm curious, but, um, uh, it, like 340, he's he's got the monorail in the contemporary. Yeah. How did he get that angle? He's like, it's like he's got a real long selfie stick or something raising the camera <laughs> up that tall. He's like, up was, on one of the, if you take the guest elevators, there's those bridges that go across into uh, the different, the, each side of the of the A-frame. So he's, he's, uh, he's probably hanging off one of those and uh, zoomed in a little bit. Some cameras had zoom back in the 70s. It was it was quite a feature if you did have it. That was considered, uh, you know, an upgrade on a lot of cameras, uh, zoom. So he, he may have had that or even had a changeable lens so that he could he could get a get a close shot. I love that angle though, with all the monorail doors swinging open simultaneously. Oh yeah, it's a great shot with the and with the pink and in orange carpet and everything. It's fantastic. So again, if you go to retroww.com up in the upper right menu you've seen films and video and click on restored films and you'll see the four related there so give them a shot and uh if you have any film by all means let us know shoot us an email we'd be more than happy to help you get that restored all right guys how you've got some new designs for our t-shirt and we are now 
offering tapestries and pillows and all sorts of other home goods that are coming to the store, which is great. So if you want to check out any of these merchandise that we're talking about um, and or T-shirts or what, stickers, whatever you'd like to get, check out retrowww.com forward slash support us. And all proceeds go to help to keep this show on the air. Um, with that said, we also want to give a big shout out to everybody um, who participated in our donation campaign uh, that we ran last month. We had a number of different articles left over from our event, and we ran a campaign to help support the show. We ran a little short on funds actually putting on our event uh, in order to help fill that gap and also set us up um, to be successful at creating some additional events next year. Um, we set up a donation page and we gave out certain gifts at different monetary levels. And uh, we received gifts from all across the board from high to low. And I just want to send out, I think we all do guys, a big thank you to everybody um, who, who, who sent in uh, and, and supported us and keeping us going. So really, thank you very much. And, and we're in a good position to get the, get the next, uh, next event going for, for late uh, next year is what we're targeting. And one of those uh, fountains went uh, to auction for charity, right, Todd? That's correct. So we had the number one fountain set aside, and we put that up on eBay, and we donated 75% of the sale uh, to Give Kids the World. And I'm happy to say that we raised over $300 uh, for Give Kids the World. So a big thank you to everybody who bid, and, and especially the high bidder for, uh, for purchasing that. And um, we've got that donation going right over to give, give Kids the World. So if you weren't able to bid, if you can help out Give Kids the World any, at any point in time, I'm sure they'd appreciate any other type of donation as well to help bring uh, kids that uh, you know might be going through a debilitating illness or something like that, give them a chance to uh, visit Disney World with their family. All right, guys, well, it's about time we wrap up this episode. Um, we got to pick a top to go, to go uh, next month. And, and Brian, I know you're... You're the holiday man here, and we've got a lot of Christmas stuff to go. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a little trip around the world again uh, in uh, for, for for the Christmas season, right? Absolutely. We uh, this is also by popular demand because I, I can't tell you how many people we've run into this year that said we're gonna do the next <laughs> Christmas episode, right? You know, you're gonna do, and I'm like, oh, oh, sh- sure, we are, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so there's enough there's enough uh, out there for, that we haven't covered in. Uh, in our resorts and uh, some of the other stuff they've done on property over the years for the holidays that uh, I think we've got enough in us for another episode. Plus, we'll record it uh, somewhere near Thanksgiving so it'll get all of us in the spirit. That's right. That's right. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, Art and Linda are coming back for a very special pageant uh, film that will be coming out around the time of the podcast. So we'll be talking about them as well. They've got some great footage that I don't think I've never seen any of the footage of this before from the holiday season. So, so look for us uh, in the uh, early December time frame in that episode. And it's also a big episode. We'll be pulling the winner of the prize pot, second yes. half prize pot. And uh, yeah, so JT, you've got the list going. No, when I go down to get the Christmas the ornaments, I'll uh, fire up the machine, make sure it still works, the whole deal. Yeah, get that, get that running. So. Well, listen, thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks for giving us a listen this month, as every month, as always. If you can, give us a shout-out on iTunes or Google Play, anywhere you review our, our, our podcast is much appreciated. Uh, and and uh, we'll talk to you next month. So with that, Brian, take us out. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. 
For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles.